Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome back to the pod our FCAC spirit animal, Lee Wilkoff. He's been in a million TV shows and plays. He was the original Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors. He's been nominated for OB's Drama Desk's Tony Awards. He directed a very good movie called No Paid Nudity, starring Gabriel Byrne, Nathan Lane, and Francis Conroy. He's beloved mostly everywhere he goes, and particularly here at the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Lee, welcome back. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm always happy to, to return here. Uh, it's, it's my favorite podcast. Um, and to be able to talk about movies is one of my favorite things. I don't I don't do that too often with with people, but uh, um, just thanks for that great intro. And uh, I, you mentioned Little Shop. We just hit the 40th anniversary of the very first uh, uh, performance, and so that's been like there's been a little bit of like it bringing back into my life, and that that that's been pretty interesting. Yeah, I saw an article in the New York Times over the weekend, I yeah. believe, that you were quoted in talking about the early days and the photos are just amazing to me. I don't know, just yeah. looking at those old photos, what's it like for you when you look at a photo of something you did 40 years ago? Uh, surreal. And uh, I mean, I unless I look in the mirror, I, I think I look that way. So then I, <laughs> then I look in the mirror and I go, oh, no, I don't. Seeing all those people, it brings back uh, a lot of memories, mostly good that was just that show just changed everything but more most significantly and met my wife um but the article was uh brought back all of the great stuff that uh that that's brought to me it amazing cool. uh now when we were emailing back and forth about this appearance on the pod and i'm going to put a link at the uh, in the show notes here for people to just directly click onto lee's two previous appearances on the pod they're both well worth checking out uh, we batted around a few films. I think you suggested Carrie, and that jumped out right away at me because I haven't seen it probably since high school. What made you suggest Carrie? Well, I went through a list of, I think you asked me about, we were going to talk about movies from the 70s. I remember actually the theater I saw it, I, I, and I, I went through the list. Uh, you went through the list, and um, there were the movies that really I without having seen, although most of them I know I've seen at least 10 times, including Carrie. There's some movies that I watch every couple years. And Carrie, first time, I don't, I think Badlands preceded Correct. Uh, Carrie, but I did not see it till after I saw Carrie. So it was the first time I saw Sissy Spacek which had a huge impact on me. I, I'm not going to acknowledge or admit that I was a huge Brian De Palma fan mm -hmm. previous to that, but I just, it was so vivid for me and probably would have remained vivid for me had I not seen it as many times as I've seen it over the years. I remember seeing it the first time and within a few weeks, I needed to see it again for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I went to a different theater the reaction in both the reaction in the second theater was so profound, and I'll talk about it when we go through the film. What mm. happened? I don't want to give it away yet, but okay. the movie has stuck with me. If I'd never seen it since the first those two times, I think I would remember it just as well as having just watched it. I, I, I watched it again last week because I knew this was coming up. So it's it's very vivid for me, and because it's a really vivid film, 
And there's some performances in it, particularly Sissy. And, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember her name. The woman that played her, Piper Laurie. Piper Laurie, yeah. Uh, who, who I, last night, uh, she, the last film she did prior to, um, Carrie was The Hustler, <laughs> right. which was in 1961. She she retired, not retired, but she took a break, I think, to raise her family. And uh, I actually, uh, she was in Wood, she was living in Woodstock, which is right up the road from where I'm living now. But that performance, Piper Laurie. Incredible. That was extraordinary. Amazing. Quite, both of their performances, along with just about everybody else. I agree. You know, when I watched it again just the other night, I had a maybe more so than any film I can remember doing on the podcast. And I think we're up to about episode 125 or something now. I had it was so hard to watch. My empathy for Carrie was so overwhelming that it was it was almost impossible to watch. I, I just I felt for this character so much and the stain literally from the first second you first see second playing that the that volleyball volleyball game it's heartbreaking bungles it's just she's so awkward you know she I, I know you know that she was 24 when she or 23 it came out when she was 24 but she was she, like she was 16 maybe even younger she was it, you, you just felt so much there's a, a yiddish word rahmanis uh, so much the compassion for her and you just felt oh my god this mm -hmm. poor child and then what they do or in the next scene in the in the shower room it's just mm -hmm. devastating it really is it's funny you know one of the i was watching some of the making of featurettes and one of the actors says you know everyone oh, i think it's amy irving says you know everyone always thinks the shower scene is the first scene in the movie people forget there's the volleyball scene which typically to De Palma is also just artfully filmed with, of course, this amazing crane shot and kind of uh, coming down to find Carrie in the back left corner of the volleyball match. And the, you know, the ball is hit to her and she's not athletically inclined and everything you need to know about the character and her relationship to the other girls is described actually in that volleyball scene before you even get to the famous exactly. shower scene. And I think many of us in the entertainment business probably were athletically more on the side of a carry as opposed to like a John Travolta in this movie. I, was. I know I was. So my, I was too. You know, in high school, when you're, uh, in my case, a pimply, scrawny, unathletic member of the marching band, uh, I think my heart ripped open immediately all over again for Carrie. Mm -hmm. And it, that didn't leave me. And, and the visceral way in which you are rooting for her and the way that Sissy Spacek portrays all of the different arcs of this character in the film, which is not one dimensional at all. It is heartbreaking. And I think the, the, the reason it's probably the movie that stays around the longest in terms of De Palma's long and varied career 
is because of that, is that for all the technical wizardry that is that you could look at, and it is there. I mean, if you wanted to get into the amazing technical thing that's going on with all of these insane shots that he's using, but the movie never feels like some other De Palma films, like an exercise in technical camera movement. It's all in service of this incredibly deftly handled emotional story. So it was, it, it ripped my heart open all over again. And it starts and ends with the performance of Sissy Spacek, who is rightfully nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. Mm -hmm. Piper Laurie was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. This could be a hot take, but it's hard for me to think of a better film performance in a horror movie, uh, an acting performance in a horror movie than Sissy Spacek. I mean, I was trying to think of other iconic horror films. You know, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Um, okay. But I'm trying to think of any, and I, you know, very few have like, you know, Mar Nicol perhaps Marty Feldman. I watched it the other day in Young Frankenstein. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> he is great in that, but I, I, it's hard I, to I, think of another horror no. film. Uh, I, I looked, I looked this up too. And of course, you know, people put things like um, misery, which I don't know. I just, I don't really think of that as a horror film, but I guess it is in its own way. Kathy Bates, um, but this is a pure horror film to me in that, you know, supernatural things happen. There are <clears throat> telekinetic powers. A house disappears into the ground. Like, it's not just a, a high school story or a supernatural story. It has all these things going on. So, wow. It, it's so powerful still. And uh, Sissy Spacek is an American treasure. She's an incredible actor. The story of how she got this role is kind of amazing. I'm going to play you a little clip of her talking about it in a second. But let's let's step step back a little bit, just talk a little bit about Brian De Palma's career prior to this, because he's got such a weird and interesting career. I watched the De Palma documentary. I think I sent it to you as well. I, I watched most of it. It's and then pretty. I got sidetracked, but I watched I watched past Carrie. Yeah. And then my wife picked it up and watched the whole thing. I, I just I, I something happened and I had to leave, but I wanted to get through. Uh, and I'm going to go back to it. But. It's funny. It's an interesting doc because he's really just, um, he's sitting there uh, being interviewed and just kind of anecdotally talking through his the entirety of his career. So it's not really an in-depth treatment of any one film, but you do get interesting kind of details. And at this time in his career, he was coming off two flops. He had made a film uh, called Phantom of the Paradise, which we've also mm -hmm. done on this podcast. And I'll put a link in the episode notes to that episode as well. Chris and I did that. Um, and he did a film called Obsession, which he's really funny about in the documentary because he was kind of saddled with uh, Cliff Robertson, who's very unsuited to the time period and the role and was wearing bad orange Trumpian makeup and was not a pleasant individual. He was not a pleasant individual. <laughs> I, re I read that about some other picture. He was not pleasant. That don't And that when that happens on a picture, that makes it even harder. Oh, I can't so, even imagine. You know, and he's talking yeah. about, you know, trying to, you know, he was rude and cruel to his co-star and just just not not fun. So these these films didn't work. De Palma, you know, was not a hot director. And he had been introduced to the idea of this book, I guess, by a fellow director or writer who mentioned the book. He read the book, he investigated, he found out that no one yet had the rights. This was Stephen King's first published novel. 
And I was not aware of that. It was. I didn't know that. And the book has kind of a overlay on it, which I had completely forgotten. It's funny. This is also one of the few instances I think you could think of where if you say the word carry, I think people think of the movie before they think of the book. I'm pretty sure you, yes. You know, they don't think of, although there may be a few people that think of the musical first. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I, we're going we're gonna to talk about that particular <laughs> slice of genius down the road because you're the perfect person to dissect what went right or wrong there. So um, I've got some clips. Yeah, so the book has this kind of overlay of a government investigation into the events that took place at the Hitchcockian named Bates High School, lest anyone uh, lest anyone miss the overt flag waving that De Palma always does for Hitchcock, his mm -hmm. uh, his his North Star of filmmaking. And that device, I think even Stephen King realized uh, filmically would not really have worked. But the first screenplay that was written kept that device intact. But I think they realized pretty quickly on that kind of kept us as an audience from Carrie from the story, because it was all sort of after the fact, talking to the Sue character, you know, what happened? Are you telling me that, you know, she could move objects and all this kind of stuff? So he obtained the rights to the book. And I guess there was some, a long, a long wait for the money to come together from the studio. So he talks in, uh, in the making of materials that he had more time to prepare for Carrie than maybe he did on any other film. And he really thought out every shot, which I think you can see. So it was made on a budget of $1.8 million. And I don't think the studio certainly did not expect it to be anything other than probably a B-movie horror movie that maybe would do that type of business. But people, I think, pretty early on realized they had a chance at capturing something special. So that's a little bit of the background of how it came to be. And then had he not, well, who knows what if he hadn't done Carrie, what he would have done, but his his career clearly was saved mm -hmm. and he went on to make a lot of, he kept working. Yes. Because you have, like now I know, uh, my understanding is two flops in a row, you're finished. Yeah, I mean, he, he was the same back then. One more flop. Yeah. He, he might've just been, okay, he moves on to episodic television which there's nothing wrong with episodic television, yeah. but it's not the same as directing a feature film, which is what he, that's all he wanted to do. Yeah, so. he went on to make, uh, you know, his career always is kind of ups and downs. He made Dress to Kill. Mm -hmm. um, he made Scarface, obviously, which is probably his most monumental success as a filmmaker. Right. Uh, from an Oliver Stone screenplay, The Untouchables. Untouchables. Very mainstream kind of Brian De Palma film, Mission Impossible, which is always... A shock and a reminder to me that he directed the first Mission Impossible movie, which is very good. I didn't realize that until I looked. I looked him up on IMDb, and I I forgot that he had directed that. Uh, he did Blowout, great Travolta movie. Uh, Body Doubles, a really weird, funny, fascinating, classic Brian De Palma film. Uh, Casualties of War didn't work for me. I watched that again recently when I was going down my Vietnam War Same film. Same for me. Same for me. Just, just not good. Uh, Carlito's Way, kind of an intriguing mess. Doesn't really come together. Has some great performances. Femme Fatale, okay. Uh, and Passion in 2012, which I haven't seen. So he's got a really interesting weird career he he came up at the exact same time as George Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola. He's part of that group 
Um, and in fact, when they were casting Carrie, he and George Lucas did joint casting because Lucas was casting Star Wars at the same time. So they were all, and they both wanted unknown actors for the most part. And so- That is wild that they were, they were in the same room, mm -hmm. seeing people, two different directors, casting two different <laughs> films, I've never it's heard of that before. Have you ever heard of that? that? Ever and never experienced that. <laughs> never heard of it. But I do want to, if you don't mind me going back one second, you, you failed to mention, and maybe it was on purpose, Bonfire of the Vanities, which was a monumental Oh, failure. right. How could I forget? Yes. Monumental failure. But I have a theory about, like, I'm not saying it's a great book, but when books are, like, iconic to people, mm -hmm. and you try to, you try to uh, turn it into... Um, a film, you're at a disadvantage. It just, hmm. it, it probably shouldn't have even been attempted, but I think that set him back because it was so expensive. But sorry, sorry to. Uh, no, I'm to always digress. here to. I'm always here to discuss a flop, and it's and it's. And it was a big flop. It was a big flop. It spawned one of the best books ever written about uh, a Hollywood flop, and curiously, in his in his documentary, De Palma is. He makes a case that he still thinks it's a very good film, which which was so convincingly laid out that I almost was like, maybe I should watch that again just to make I, sure. Well, you saying that, I, I, I might go back and watch it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it, listen, the skill that a director has, he has to be able to talk anybody into anything. So I think That's he can great. talk us into thinking it's probably better than it was, but it might be worth a rewatch. It would be curious now, particularly to go back and see because you know, some of his films age into, appreciation more than others. So yeah, it's fascinating to look at some of the audition footage where you see William Catt, who plays uh, the boyfriend of the Amy Irving character who takes Carrie to the prom. You know, you see him doing an audition for uh, Luke Skywalker in Star right. Wars. Um, he's got the hair that he has in Carrie. He's a good actor. I, I think William Catt, I, I had a new appreciation for him watching him in Carrie. He, he, he does uh, he's very present with her. And those are awkward and interesting scenes because the motivations of his character and Amy Irving's character are never really explicitly laid out as much as I, I agree. they are I in agree. my mind, you know? Um, the, 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 the cool thing about uh, auditioning, you go in, I mean, speaking as an actor, if I'd have had this opportunity, you go into audition for one film or two films, okay? Now, I don't think anybody knew that the role of Luke Skywalker was going to become, you know, I don't know how many how many movies Mark Hamill did. Mm -hmm. But um, but the the consolation prize, he didn't get Luke Skywalker, but he got Carrie. So to go in for an audition for a, a, <laughs> for um, uh, George Lucas and you get Carrie. Well, that's just amazing that you go in for one thing and you get another movie, which is like you'll always be remembered for. It's it's pretty cool. Maybe they should always do this for a film audition. I would love that. I think Amy, oh no, it's PJ, the PJ Souls character, right? So those like 70s, 80s horror icon PJ Souls. Uh, she tells a story in the casting Carrie featurette about that very same thing. She went in and read for both of them and she could see that George Lucas was just sort of, she She reads so contemporary late 70s teen. There's just no, there's no way you could ever envision her in Star Wars. And she could see that on George Lucas's face. But De Palma was like, I'll use her. So they're sort of like divvying up the crop of actors and being like, yeah, no, she, she doesn't work for me, but she works for you, you take her. I wanna play you this little chunk here of Sissy Spacek telling the story 
Brian was meeting with everyone and he would meet us in big groups and he'd have one person read Carrie and then, you know, he'd mix it all up. So I was feeling a little weird because I was only testing for one. So I didn't have as big a shot as everybody else did of getting in the film. So I got this commercial and it just happened to be on the same day as the test and I thought, oh, I'll call Brian and see what I can do. I said, sissy, I think you should take the commercial because I got my eye on this girl. I think she's gonna be something. I think I said some expletive <laughs> and hung up the phone. It just made me so mad. I reread the book the day before the screen test and I think I rubbed Vaseline in my hair and found some old sailor suit that my mother had had made for me in seventh grade and I took the hem out of it and I really, I was really into it and I was feeling very sorry for myself, which was perfect for the character. So when I went into the test the next morning, I don't think I even washed my face. They had hair and makeup there and they saw me come in and they just ran for me because I would just look so awful and of course I was I think that I felt so used and abused at that point because I knew Brian, I was not his favorite. And that worked for me. I just decided I was gonna get it. She came in and did the test and of course blew everybody away. So pretty amazing story. <laughs> amazing, I wonder who the actress was. She, they, they have a clip of her in one of the making ofs. She was in a, she was in a, a pregnancy film of the, of the period. And I think that's oh. where, that's where he saw her in a sort of about like a teen who gets pregnant. And I think in her kind of struggle with that and how she's going to fit in with her parents and social group, he, he really was fixated. One of the interesting things about De Palma that I came away from was, you know, he's very willing to admit when he's wrong. <clears throat> There are moments in casting where, you know, he was so fixated on this other actor and then Sissy Spacek, uh, who was married to his uh, production designer, I believe. Mm -hmm. She's been married to him since Badlands yeah, in 1972. For years, for probably 50 years. It's got to be, be one of the best, most solid marriages in Hollywood. Um, That's right. And he seems like a great guy. He's in the features, too. As he, as you hear Brian De Palma say in that anecdote, you know he basically is telling her like, "Sissy, I think you should take the sure thing in the commercial. You're, you know, I, I want this other actor, and I think she's going to get it." But obviously, it's amazing to me that an actor can have that moment of knowing that they're right for a part, the way she seemed to know she could inhabit this character of Carrie, and that the minute, I guess, the great thing about the business in a way is. If she if she's right about that, when they're all together in the screening room and watching all of the different actors doing their screen tests, it's undeniable. And they all say that it's clear when they saw Sissy's screen test, she's yeah. Carrie, right? Yeah, I mean, auditioning is, uh, wow, she must have, auditioning, when you, when you get cast in something or you work on something, you have a, a tremendous amount of time to refine and and go deep. But uh, she must have worked on it a long time and or just connected with it so clearly, clearly she connected with it. I mean, it's it's kind of extraordinary. You listen to her. She's a Southern girl, <laughs> this Southern woman. And sometimes, I mean, it's a transformation that, one of those films were like, it wasn't really sissy. It was, mm -hmm. it, it was another, she became another person. She did. It appears that way. 
Some of the other cast, let's go through. So obviously Amy Irving, I think it was Amy Irving's first film. First movie, yeah. And I didn't realize until after the fact that Priscilla Pointer, who plays Sue's mother, the Amy Irving character, is her real life mother, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which adds something to the scenes when you know that. Although to her credit as an actor, you don't need to know that in order for her to be perfectly cast as right. the type of mother that she's presented at in the neighborhood. This, there, there's so many great scenes. Obviously, everyone talks about the shower scene. Everyone talks about the prom scene. Everyone talks about Piper Laurie's death scene. But let's not forget this great Piper Laurie scene between Piper Laurie and Priscilla Pointer when after the period debacle has occurred to Carrie, uh, Carrie's mother goes to Amy Irving's house and is trying to proselytize to Priscilla Pointer. And it's such a great, funny scene in a way. And I think De Palma's attitude towards religion is pretty overtly on display throughout the film, but certainly in this scene, it's such a good and well-played scene between two great actors who are kind of, have a really interesting crackling energy. And Piper Laurie's take on the character is just unbelievable. <laughs> well, I don't know uh, if you, uh, I watched a, 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 um, an interview of her that you recommended and you, you may have wanted to discuss this, but she couldn't quite, she didn't quite get it when mm -hmm. she got cast and she, and she, when she realized that there was an element of humor that she that she that needed to be kind of infused and it was part of the film that there's there is a kind yes. of a, an element of humor that that goes through the entire film that's when she kind of understood it oh mrs white how have you been mrs Smith? fine and the doctor fine and your daughter sue is fine won't you come in, Mrs. White? Oh, how kind of you. I think Carrie is in some of Sue's classes. Yes. Well, perhaps sometime she might like to visit. I'm here on the Lord's work, Mrs. Snell. Spreading the gospel of God's salvation through Christ's blood. Yes, of course. I have something here I know is going to interest the doctor and you. The teenager's path to salvation through the cross of Jesus. I don't think Sue would be very interested in Oh, that. the children are wandering through the wilderness of sin these days, Mrs. Nell. My Sue is a good girl. These are godless times, Mrs. Nell. Well, I'll drink to that. We'll all read these. Excuse me. Please sit down, Mrs. White. Although her performance is dead serious, it is kind of funny, too, at the same time. I think that's what makes it even richer. Well, no no less in eminence than Pauline Kael, noted New Yorker film critic, agreed with you in November of 1976 in her review of Carrie. I want to read just this first few lines because it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. She says, quote, Carrie is a terrifyingly lyrical thriller. The director, Brian De Palma, has mastered a teasing style, a perverse mixture of comedy and horror and tension like that of Hitchcock or Polanski, but with a lulling sensuousness. He builds our apprehensions languorously, softening us for the kill. You know you're being manipulated, but he works in such a literal way and with so much candor that you have the pleasure of observing how he affects your susceptibilities even while you're going into shock. I think that's such yeah. a brilliant assessment of what he's doing in this film. 
And she encapsulates something I felt after watching it, which is with many De Palma films, he's not a one dimensional filmmaker. He's not telling a linear story. He's he's always also commenting on the thing he's doing. And in Carrie, that is both overt, but also not essential to the enjoyment of the picture, which is probably why it was such a mass success and has spawned so many other unfortunate spinoffs and films that never quite live up to the IP. Now we're in the era of IP. Carrie is a piece of IP. Let's spin this off into innumerable series and other films that have nothing really mm -hmm. to do with the original. And as you said, various stage production. So that sense that there's a couple things going on at all times, that Pinteresque sense, I guess you would call it in the theater, is something he does so, so well. And I think all of these performances seem to do well, although it was interesting to hear Nancy Allen, uh, who plays one of the two villains with the Travolta character is her boyfriend. And they have so many fascinating, scenes, fascinating De Palma scenes where she's insulting him by calling him stupid. He hits her. Uh, they're the ones who concoct the revenge plot to dump the bucket of pig's blood over Carrie. And she says in that featurette that she and Travolta were completely unaware that they were the villains until they saw the finished film. They just thought they were kind of the comic relief. They thought they were having. I didn't. I, I'm not aware of that interview. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. So it, wow. I wanted to ask you about that because it, it occurred to me that that speaks to the fact that maybe not all the actors in a thing always need to know exactly what's going on. Do you think that's true? I think I, 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 yes, I do. <laughs> uh, I certainly have. You've kept things from actors purposefully? No, I haven't. I mean, I've only directed one thing. I haven't kept, uh, I may have done that inadvertently, but, but my acting, there's things that I don't realize that are happening. Uh, and then when I see a, a finished film, um, I go, oh my, oh, I didn't realize that mm. that's what was going on. I think over, I think if, if an actor sometimes knows too much or the direct, the director gives them too much information, then they overthink it rather than just live it. Mm. So, uh, uh, I did want to mention the Travolta performance has and I, as mentioned, I've seen the film a number of times. It, it may have been the first time I also saw him. Yeah. Probably the first time I saw most of the people. Um, I always was very puzzled about, about that performance because it was, he was such a bumpkin. He was such <laughs> a freaking bumpkin. And she, you know, he, she, her, she, she was not, she was this conniving, um, really angry um i don't know the two of them together always made me kind of laugh but mm -hmm. she but he was he was easily manipulated by her yes. her uh seductive powers and uh you know it paid off and mm -hmm. um but i always found that performance kind of like a little little elevated and different than almost the reality of everybody else. It's the accent, it I think. He's he's doing kind of a strange Southern accent, even though I don't believe mm -hmm. there's any mm -hmm. 
there's no, I don't believe there's any locators in the film as to where we are. It's clearly filmed in Southern California, but. I thought about that when I watched it just a couple weeks ago or when I last watched it, where, where are we? Yeah. I don't think they said, I don't think it, I don't think he, you don't need to know. You don't need to know. They certainly don't have anything like palm trees or beaches or anything to indicate that. But yeah, the Travolta, you know, so it was Travolta's first big film role. Uh, He got this movie at the same time that he'd been cast in Welcome Back, Cotter, which obviously would turn him into a TV star. Uh And then his next two films were Saturday Night Fever in 1977 and Greece in 1978. So, Ah, well, Saturday Night Fever, there you go. But yeah, the the Nancy Allen, uh, who plays Chris and Travolta, scenes are are they're De Palma-esque. I mean, I guess he's one of those filmmakers you have to have you have to have your own sobriquet to say it's De Palma-esque. The scene in the car is fascinating, revolting, hilarious, perverse. It's all of these things in a scene that for almost any other director making a genre picture would just be a one-dimensional scene, right? Mm-hmm. What's going on in that scene between them is so fascinatingly De Palma-esque in that, yes, as you mentioned, he's being sexually manipulated by her. There's violence between both of them. There's his wounded ego, and she just continually through the whole film calls him stupid, you stupid fuck, you dumb stupid. Like, And he flies off the handle, yet she then uses sex to manipulate him into what she wants. But then in the great scene where she's giving him a blowjob in order to get him to do what she wants, and just as he's about to climax and the way the scene is shot, you're 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 also feeling this rising sense of climax. And then she punctuates it, uh, not with an orgasm, but with, I hate that Carrie White. And he goes, what? <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> That's the only thing on her mind. Oh I mean, my God. You know, the De, the De Palma orgasm. And then also when Piper Laurie's death scene is an orgasm, I never realized until, you know, when I watched it as a child or a teenager, I didn't quite pick up on that. But her death scene is a religious orgasm as she mm-hmm. dies as well. Mm-hmm. So, And then when you watch the De Palma documentary, you learn all these fascinating tidbits about his childhood and you realize part of what all the controversy of De Palma, you know, the, oh, he's got too much, he's a misogynist, uh, women are always sliced and abused. Uh, it's He's a voyeur. But you realize a lot of this comes from his childhood where his father was absent. He was a orthopedic surgeon and De Palma grew up watching his father perform extremely physical surgeries. As he says in the documentary, it wasn't eye surgery. There's a lot of wrestling the parts and sawing and you can't imagine the amount of blood in an operating theater when this is going on. And at the same well, time, he was a philanderer. I he was believe. a philanderer. I mean, he mentioned that, which which has strong uh, effect on a young a young person. And so, he, yeah, he, it was very complicated. I didn't realize he was from was was he grow did he grow up on the island? He, he, or yeah, Jersey? Or, yeah, I, yeah. I think he grew up in New Jersey. Um, and he he used to follow his, the voyeurism. He used to follow his father and yes, other men. Like, uh, yeah. He used to follow his father to his assignations with his mistress and then con- I think either confront his father or they had some violent scenes around that. So he also talks in the documentary about he would randomly follow other people. Uh, so a lot of the De Palma things, when you watch the De Palma documentary, which I recommend, 
you understand the underpinnings of them. And these scenes are so fascinating when you when you watch them. But again, you can just watch Carrie as a genre picture and you will be thrilled and titillated. You know, it, it hits all of those buttons, even as there's so much more fascinating stuff going on. Well, going back to Nancy Allen, he met her on the film and he married her. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she became, uh, I guess it's she became, muse, so to speak, she, she became the first Mrs. Mrs. De Palma and a muse for yeah. some time. She has a great casting story too. Did you hear her story of being cast in the film? I don't I, know if you heard that. I don't. I thought I. I think I did, but will you remind? Well, she was in a. She had uh, come to L.A. to try and break into movies, and it wasn't working wow. out. And she had basically given up. And she was in a steam room at the gym. This bizarre steam room appearances. So De Palma first heard of the novel Carrie in a steam room and Nancy Allen was leaving a steam room at a gym when she ran into a casting director who remembered her who said, oh, hey, Nancy, and asked her what she was doing. And Nancy explained to her that it really wasn't working out. And the casting director said, well, I'm it's the last day I'm casting a film. Why don't you come by? You're not probably going to get cast, but, you know, it's an opportunity to meet a director. And Nancy said, OK, I'll come by, not expecting anything. And it was the last day of auditions for Carrie. And not only did she get the part, but she got the director too, which is right. reminiscent of your right. uh, your being cast in Little Shop, where you also yeah. then married the important yeah. person who got you the role. <laughs> but the interesting thing, I'm just, it occurs to me, it's just a little side thing for an actor. As an actor, I, she goes in and she the, the casting director says, you're not gonna get it. And that that is very freeing. Mm. You know, you go in and I'm not going to get this, so I'll just do, I'll, I can just do whatever I want. Well, she got it. So I, I don't think that, that no, having that information probably was maybe useful. And it was probably true, too. That's really interesting. The last day, you're not going to get it. <laughs> and then she gets it. Yeah, impressive. And uh, as you mentioned, Piper Laurie hadn't been in a movie since 1961. Mm -hmm. She has her voice is so perfect for this role. Like that deep voice coming out of that body. She, mm -hmm. she took that role into such fascinating places. I didn't really hear her speak so much to like why this role to come out of not a retirement per se, but as you said, certainly a break of being in films of what, 16 years. The idea of Piper came from Marsha Nassiter, who was an executive at United Artists at the time. And I'd always been an admirer of Piper Laurie. And I thought, this is an interesting idea. I'd done The Hustler, and I retired for 15 years until I was asked to do Carrie. I no longer had an agent, but a wonderful woman who had been my agent years before in New York City uh, called and said, I have a script here. I'm going to set it up and read it. So I did, and I thought it was sort of a cliche part, and I didn't get it. And I was talking to my husband that evening, and I said, no, I... He said, well, you know, Brian De Palma has a comedic approach to just about everything he does. And I thought, oh, that's the secret. I didn't read it properly. So I reread it, and I thought, oh, this is a, a satire. And so I took the train into New York City, and I met Brian De Palma, and he was so charming, and he didn't make me feel as if I were being interviewed or interrogated. He told me a lot about himself, and we said goodbye, and I took the train back to Woodstock, 
and got a message that they wanted me to do the movie. <laughs> it's crazy. Wow, to think of her all these years <laughs> later is just like wild. It's just amazing. There's so many things and, in and this I movie. I read about her and she became a mentor, actually, to a lot of these people, to PJ Souls, mm -hmm. to, I forget, a couple other cast members. She, They really loved her. She's, she's supposed to be, she's still alive. I think she's either 92 mm -hmm. or 95. She would just be loved by the cast. It's so interesting because the character she played is like so, so like, so remote and kind of solitary, mm. but they all were drawn to her because she's probably this extraordinary woman. Clearly, this performance, you don't that doesn't come from from nowhere. That comes from having quite a soul, I think. Mm. And they were drawn to her. And I, I love that, that they that they all fell in love with her and she mentored them. I think that's just amazing. It's cool also that she talks a lot about having her own ideas for the character and Brian De Palma being really welcoming and accepting of those, really from everyone. I take pride in rescuing one of my favorite lines. It's very subtle and it sort of goes by and people don't pay any attention to it really. But it's in that scene when I come to see her just before she's getting ready to go and she's made her own dress. And obviously it's pale pink, which wasn't planned. It was in the script. My line is red. I might have known it would be red. And the designer decided that pink would look nicer on Sissy. And no one bothered to check the dialogue. And so there I was with my line, red. I might have known it would be red. Red. I might have known it would be red. It's pink, Mama. Brian was going to change it. I said, no, no, no. You know, in her head. It's, it's red. Take off that dress. We'll burn it together and pray for forgiveness. I remember having Piper on the set and I would look into those eyes and I'd think, what is this woman thinking? I don't have a clue. <laughs> Stop it, mama. Stop hurting yourself, mama. And then she would do this and I'd be, you know, amazed every time. I didn't have a clue what was going on in her brain. I knew she had a kind of very odd sense of humor, but she created this person that was just like, oh my God, and funny and real and passionate and violent and quite unusual. You know, because her character as written on the page was perhaps not quite what we're seeing in the movie. I think probably exactly. I just hope she didn't have to audition. I think it was probably an offer. You think so? <laughs> I would think so. I don't know. I, with the thoroughness of De Palma. Um, yeah, who knows? But he's, you know, he'd been in the business a long time. I think he'd made 10 movies before this or something. So, mm -hmm. you know, he probably knew enough to know she was great. And, but certainly I don't think anyone knew that there would be two Academy Award nominations for what's viewed as a genre picture. That really d didn't happen at the time. And Are very, those the only award, the, were those the only nominations for the film? For the film, Just yes. Yes. For me? Yeah. Yeah, they were. And um, I don't recall who shot that film. Was it Vilmo Zsigmond? That was it no, Vilmos? no. It was a. Uh, it's an Italian guy um, uh. whose name I can't remember. Who was actually the second cinematographer? So they had <clears throat> the first part of the film was shot, or I think some of the um, some of the scenes that are in the film were shot by the original DP who had a conflict uh. with De Palma, 
and they then brought in. Um, you mean a personal conflict? They, they yeah, they weren't they weren't they weren't seeing eye to eye. I mean, can you uh -huh. imagine being you know Brian De Palma's cinematographer if you don't uh -huh. really understand you know if you're not willing to go to where he was willing to go? Given that it was a fairly low budget film, I'm not it's not like he was you know picking from Academy Award nominated cinematographers per se. So the gentleman named Mario Tosi came in. Mm -hmm. and, I've heard of him. And yeah. really did all of the stuff that you see inside Carrie's home and uh, was much more of a piece with what uh, with what De Palma was doing. So it you know, that it wasn't expected to be that type of film. Another piece of casting I want to talk about is I was watch, you know, when you watch Betty Buckley as the gym teacher, Miss Collins, again, like the Travolta uh, Nancy Allen scenes, you know, I was laughing at sort of the female gym teacher trope in movies and TV shows. And how did that ever become a thing over, you know, 60 years of Hollywood? Like you can see it in so many funny, so many funny ways. It's, it's always like, if you get cast as that, you're just going to be wearing the worst wardrobe of anybody in any movie play or TV show. Like you're going to have a sweatshirt, uh, baggy shorts, mm -hmm. a whistle, a baseball mm -hmm. hat, bad hair. Uh, it's a thankless, usually a thankless bit of casting. But Betty Buckley, oh my God. Like even in this one role where on the one hand, she is Carrie's protector, yet in her first scene with Carrie, she slaps her in the face. Uh -huh. And she has a certain amount of revulsion and kind of get your shit together Ness towards Carrie that right grow up grow up come on and so many weird and interesting choices she also slaps uh Nancy Allen uh when they're doing punishment right and so it's again such a weird role that's given these other layers of uh violence and you know people lashing out so of course Carrie's powers only come out in the first part of the film when she is really angry, when she's pushed too far and she doesn't have control over it. So in the shower scene, that's the first incidence we see of her powers when uh, I think when the when when Miss Collins is either has either slapped her or is telling her to grow up. Carrie kind of jolts and the light explodes in the gross. Oh, that's when the light. Ex yeah, I forgot about that because uh, I thought it was in the when when the, the principal uh, Stefan Garrosh keeps calling her the wrong name and uh, she yeah. flips over the ashtray. That's but it is, in, it is in the shower room. It's in the shower room. She does the ashtray because he keeps calling her Cassie, uh, which is brilliant. And they shot a whole intro. You can see some stills of this in some of the featurettes. They shot a whole intro to explain that Carrie has some telekinetic powers and also set up some of the repression and the religious stuff because there was a whole scene with her next door neighbor who was like a 17 year old girl sunbathing in a bikini and Carrie comes over and is talking to her. And that's where they introduce the first use of Stephen King's bizarre verbiage of dirty pillows for breasts. Uh -huh. And she says, what are those? And the woman says, what do you mean? And she says, you're dirty pillows. That's what mama calls them. <clears throat> and then uh, the mother comes out and screams at Carrie. And I think there's like a there's a hailstorm of rocks that comes out of the sky and pelts everyone and pelts the house. That's how they first did it, which 
They shot this? They shot this. Wow. <laughs> but it didn't come out well because the stones that they were pumping into the air to rain down didn't really register as rocks. Uh, uh-huh. it, it's supposed to connect to something that I... Like, it was like a shit storm. It, they didn't look like rock. <laughs> it looked like rain, they said, even though, uh-huh. even though it was like a gravel. Uh-huh. And it actually connects to something that is a little confusing at the end of the film when the house starts to kind of... You're not sure. I was like, is there an earthquake going on? Uh, but then the, the the ceiling has like holes get, get punched into it. That's supposed to tie to the scene they cut, which is rocks are now again pelting this house into the ground. So they shot this whole thing and then they sort of cut that out and it didn't work. Well, the interesting thing is about carry these things happen. Uh, and uh, the, the thing you mentioned in the shower room, the thing that I mentioned, uh, the, the thing flipping over mm-hmm. uh, it, and actually in her uh, when she goes home and uh, the mirror breaks in yes. her bedroom Great scene. and her mother hears it. And then she goes to the library yeah. to look. Is it is she looking up telekinesis? Yes. Is that yep. what it is? Yep. So it's happening, but she doesn't. Like, she finds a name for it. Mm-hmm. And I think she becomes, you know, that's, we don't hear when this first started, but she's becoming, I don't know, it's interesting that she, these things happen. And I think once she starts reading about them, then she's able, it seems like, certainly at the end of the film, she's able to control Mm -hmm. when she actually have control over these, those horrible things that happen to trap everybody in uh, at the prom. Um, yeah. So at at the beginning of the film, it's like it's it's a function of her emotions rather than uh, her ability to control it. That's what it seemed like to me. I think he's also he's linking it into the period becoming a woman. Something else Carrie doesn't uh-huh. understand that's happening to her, that's changing her and transforming her, and that she's that she's alone. Her mother. There's so much made in those first scenes. You should have told me, Mama. You should have told me. Um, you know, there's the 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 anguish is not only in the ostracization of the Carrie character. The anguish that I also feel is, oh, this poor girl wasn't told anything that she needs to know by her mother. You know, her mother willfully did not arm her with the information to normalize this experience, and in not giving her the information, she traumatized her child. And then she's so physically abusive to Carrie in right. Carrie's confusion and moment of need. It's just another incredible, risky, brave place to go for Piper Laurie's character and Piper Laurie as an actor and for Sissy Spacek as an actor too. It's, in, it's to be, as you said, 24, 26 years old, to have that command of her emotions and seemingly be a very normal person <laughs> when you look at no. her talking now like those two things don't usually go together in actors right no, no. <laughs> i mean uh, i always wished i could have worked with her um but the, the the thing you were talking about with piper laurie she's repressed it and held withheld it from carrie and then later in the film she talks about do you remember when she goes and i liked it yeah. i liked it and it's just like <laughs> wow oh my god that is an amazing scene she's talking about the whiskey amazing scene the whiskey that on his I breath her oscar nomination 
that scene. Well, the whole performance. Well, that one that line, scene. though, that, that gives that character so much more dimension, yeah. doesn't it? I locked yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that... Um, and then, so let's just talk about the shower scene. I want to talk about these three major scenes just a little bit. So the shower scene, I guess, was controversial at the sure. time, remains so because the full frontal female nudity um, and the languorous, to use Pauline Kael's word, uh, the eroticism with which it's shot, the slow motion of the bodies moving. Uh, to me, it's such an incredible horror set piece you know i don't see any of this misogynistic tendency represented in how he's doing this i think if anything he's showing you that uh, a locker room scene populated by men would be expected to be a brutal place a lord of the flies type place and he's i think showing you that you know women can be as similarly cruel and with this great story element of the period appearing in the shower, which is so visual, uh, it sets off this fascinating wave of revulsion and mockery uh, and all of the things that are going to be at play, also involving blood, also involving surprise, also involving mockery, uh, real or imagined, uh, during the prom scene. And Carrie's I mean, Sissy SpaceX performance in that is just, it's astounding to watch even today. Do you think, speaking of today, that you think they could shoot that sure. scene today? Well, I, you know what? I haven't seen any of these other modern carries. I'm sure they right. must have a version of that scene that's yeah. probably got some spin on it one way or another. Did when you, when you say, could they do it, the what do you mean? I mean, the nudity. I mean, you know, we got Me Too and this male, this male, director. male director directing these young women and they're teenagers and they're naked. I mean, it's uncomfortable. Um, but I, I don't, and, and it's also, believe me, it's also erotic in a certain way, mm -hmm. not, not, not like in a perverse way. Yeah. I mean, I think he had, he had to shoot it this way. And there were women, there were young women that were not comfortable with it and, and chose apparently not, not to, to be totally uh, mm -hmm. naked. And uh, I'm sure it was really tricky. Now you'd have to have all sorts of uh, people on the set to make sure that it's handled. In, mm -hmm. I forget what these people are called. Intimacy coordinator. That's right. And um, it would, it, well, that might either make it more doable or less. I don't know. You're talking about yes. now having more people in your business on this shot as opposed to fewer, but I don't know. Maybe uh, it's yeah. a good point. I think it was controversial even then, which says something. Yeah. I mean, we're still, you know, it's 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 early and exploitation is still a thing and directors uh, doing whatever they have to do, includes, including being, you know, psychologically or verbally abusive to get what they need is still a thing. Not that any of that was apparently occurring on this set, you know, none of these people have anything to say negative about the experience. Um, De Palma says that he says lucky for him for the set, the scenes with Sissy Spacek in the shower were shot first and they didn't really have as much of a closed set per se, but they did protect her and her husband Jack was in the shower uh, just off camera. Uh, it really interesting. And I'm sure it was 
done with great delicacy mm -hmm. and you could not the movie would not work if you didn't have that scene no and, so, and then they and, would sh they, they showed that in the dailies and the other cast members were, were as De Palma humorously says in the documentary in those days I still invited the cast to watch the dailies in, in sort of implying that he would soon learn you don't really need the input of everyone's thoughts about what they just saw but in those days he did invite the cast to watch the dailies and the other women saw and said, you know, well, if Sissy's willing to do that, you know, me running out of frame, uh, full frontal nudity is not really a big deal because they all realized they weren't being asked to be as vulnerable as she was. Uh -huh. And she talks about Jack being just off screen and he's the one who's putting the fake blood in her hand <clears throat> so that it would reveal on her thigh as she's watching herself. Uh -huh. So I did not, I was not, I was not aware of that. I didn't think that her husband was on the set, which is, uh, yeah. Very significant and very, uh, really, uh, probably made it less. Well, uh, Sissy's really a brave actress. Oh, I think incredible! She, it, 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 she would have done it with or without her husband on the set. But I'm a level of a level of safety and comfort. Yeah, him being there just just made it more more comfortable for her. Which, when you're relaxed, things things work better. She she also tells the story that, you know, she had a hard time kind of understanding what De Palma wanted Carrie's reaction to be when this was occurring. And he expressed to her that in the shower scene, it's like she's been hit by a Mack truck. Ah. And she goes, oh, what the hell is yes. that? What, what the hell is, a reaction. What does that mean? You know, but luckily, Jack Fisk, her husband, uh, she went to Jack and said, Jack, you know, he, he keeps saying it's like being hit by a Mack truck. What does that mean? And, What's getting hit by a Mack truck like? Sissy didn't quite know how to make sense of it. I, as a kid, had been run over by a car. So I started telling her what it was like to be hit by a car. And she was able to use that. You know, Brian's suggestion and my sort of visualization from having been through it to become Carrie's reaction to finding blood coming out of her body. And between every take, I would tell her the story of how I was hit by a car. And, you know, it was at Christmas time. I was looking around at Christmas lights and everything was happiness. And then I saw a car coming and then it was rearing away. And then suddenly it hit me. And then I was like trapped underneath and couldn't get out. When I'm playing that scene, I am walking down a road looking at the Christmas lights. And when I see the blood in my hand, it's when he looks over and sees the car. That's what I was thinking that's what was going on in my mind during the shower scene. And that gave her enough to sort of seize on what her her reactions would be physically and emotionally, which are still, as I said, heartbreaking, brutal to watch, so brilliantly acted. Uh, and when you juxtapose it with watching her talk about it, you know, 40 years later and that Texas accent or whatever, uh, just breezily discussing it. <laughs> it's just such an odd juxtaposition. But yeah, you, 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 you know, I just did a movie that's out today. Uh, we did Deliverance with my friend Ted Jessup. And similarly to the question you just asked about this scene, I asked Ted if in Deliverance, uh, you know, the Ned Baby scene, the squeal like a pig scene, you know, do you right. think that overshadows this otherwise really interesting movie? It's the only thing people think about when they think about this movie. And there's a lot of other interesting things going on in that movie. In this film, too, 
it's almost like, boy, you have so many to choose from. Is it the shower scene that everyone talks about that overshadows the movie? Is it the prom scene? Like, yet with Carrie, they 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 feel of a piece. And I think to your I, end, I agree. You I need agree. Them. Absolutely. So anyhow, yeah, that 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 introductory scene, it's it's funny. I had to watch Carrie once to get over, as I said, that empathetic just catharsis that I had. I almost I couldn't pay attention to the filmmaking. I was just trying to survive the movie. I was trying to survive the experience of Sissy SpaceX emotional vulnerability and this character arc. And then in the prom sequence, which is just, I mean, it's so fascinating to, to look at the way William Cat and, and Sissy are and how their conversation goes. It has so many bravura camera things. I mean, it has their famous dance sequence where they're spinning in one direction and the camera is going around them in the other, uh, which is disorienting. And that's sort of the thing that happens just before the bad thing happens. Um, but, you know, interestingly, we don't have you don't have the shot you'd think you'd have in any prom movie ever made. Right. Where the where the guy gets his first look at the ugly duckling now resplendent descending the stairs in her gown and marveling at her beauty. He just skips over that. They're just in the car outside and she's afraid to go in, which is an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if that's kind of not, he doesn't want to do all the genre stuff he knows he's supposed to do, or maybe that's a trim that they made for the sake of all this stuff that happens camera wise in the, in the prom scene. But I thought it was interesting. They didn't do that scene. I kind of wanted that scene. I wanted almost more between them because Again, that whole thing between Amy Irving's character and William Katz's character, it's never really explicitly laid out. And when they're asked to explain why they want him to go to the prom with Carrie, it's always in the context of the gym teacher asking them in a school office environment. So you sort of feel like they're lying reflexively. Like you don't trust that their agenda is what Amy Irving's character is saying that it is, which is I felt bad for what I did to Carrie in the shower scene. And to make it up to her, I wanted her to have a moment that for me is just another moment being popular and she's never had that moment. So that's why I wanted this to happen. And I think you do believe that that's what they're doing, right? Absolutely, yeah. I don't have any, I never get a sense that there's any uh, undercurrent of abuse that they're planning for Carrie. And in fact, it is- No, no, never even occurred, never okay. has no never occurred to me that way but it's again kind of funny there's no expository scene where they really lay that out like the only one there is is when they're talking to betty buckley and because she's kind of grilling them and she doesn't believe them and we're sort of we've we've only ever had betty buckley as an adult who cares about carrie to that point in the film that since it's her perspective that like i don't quite trust what your agenda is here that's our perspective as a viewer as well and I think that's an interesting De Palma choice to keep you, the I, viewer, off balance. Right. And I think it's, it's yes, right. I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, the, the one thing I wanted to, I, I'm not going to say that I'm a huge Brian De Palma fan. There are films of his that I love. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing about this film and maybe a lot of his films and some of his films, that's all it was about, was about the, he wants to remind you, at least it feels this way, even with Carrie, that you're watching a movie. Mm -hmm. Like split screen is not not something that I really, I don't love it. Yeah. 
but in carry, he, he uses it. Maybe this is something you were going to talk about, but he, he, it's, it's a device and it's really, really works in carry because of just like specifically when she's doing the destruction, mm-hmm. the, the, at the prom. Um, but do you feel that way that a lot of his films and maybe this one as much as any of them is like, you're watching a movie. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's, he that's, was accused of a few of his movies just doing tricks. <laughs> well, and I think it was yeah. an exercise for him. I, I think that is true. And I think some of them are more successful than other, others as a result. I don't think he ever quite figured it out in a way. Like there isn't one film you would point to and say, that's the perfect Brian De Palma film. They're all slightly over the top and can be ridiculous and have comedy along with the pathos and they're watchable their experiences there's great art in them uh but this one is probably the most emotionally resonant one that i can think of i agree certainly the one that grabs me the most but yeah i think the one i think of first i mean as i said not a huge fan but a fan of a huge fan of some of them scarface i really it's really i i maybe this is really perverse or pathetic it's really fun. Yes. And um, he doesn't do a lot of those tricks. I don't no. can't think of anything like with a split I, screen. I think, I think there's probably a lot of camera movement stuff that you would. That yeah, you would if think. I watch it really closely. Yeah. Yes, of course. But yeah, I uh, think, the, you know, they pulled out a lot of this split screen stuff, apparently in the prom, and uh, especially once Carrie has the has the blood dropped on her and she's, she's oh they pulled a lot out they pulled they a lot out they, they still do them out he he, he yeah. says in the thing he doesn't really he's not really he doesn't really like how they used it because he thinks it takes so he said it's not good for action oh i didn't know that so they did pull some of it out there is still some of it in there it does i think it works because it shows you it shows you carry and then it shows you the result of her action which right. would otherwise be kind of hard to right. show in real time uh, but it does constrict a feeling of where you are in the space in terms of how a scene is edited. So it is a, a very specific choice, but I think it does work. And I also think that he says when <laughs> when Sissy was doing the blood scenes, she transformed. Like no one knew she was going to look that way with her eyes. Yeah. And he kept saying to her, like, open your eyes, open them bigger, open them bigger. No. And so he was kind of amazed at her physical control and she sort of just held herself a certain way. She had her eyes and her face set a certain way. And it's spooky when you watch it. I mean, it's part of what is unbelievable about her performance, which has facets like a diamond that are completely contradictory and different from each other. It's, It's mind boggling how good it is. I mean, the fact that she didn't win is insane. Um, I don't remember. I don't know who won that year. I think it was um, Faye Dunaway for Network. Ah, well. So I mean, that's a great. That's a great role too. Don't get me wrong. It is. Doesn't have the totality of this. My God. I mean, it's hard to think of another role that does. (laughs) It's. It's just. It's incredible. I always think sometimes, not always, but when somebody gets an Oscar down the road, and and what you call it was fantastic, coal miner's daughter. Sure. They take into account. Yes, body of, body of work, but uh, uh, I forgot to mention my—I don't know if we're on our way to this, but they're going to laugh at you. Oh, 
They're gonna laugh at you. Oh my god, <laughs> man! You mean the way it's I still, looped? I still, Tommy I'm... and I, my wife, oh. once in a while, for some reason or other, <laughs> we go. They're gonna laugh at you. It's man, is that? And that when you hear that at the prom, oh, oh my god, that's just like heartbreaking. Of course. I mean, that's an interesting thing that I that mm-hmm. sometimes I ask myself. They're laughing, but some of them are horrified. It's really is it's Sometimes I always wondered, is she imagining they're laughing at her? Absolutely. But they actually are, right? Well, I I'm not I don't know. I don't think it's I if you watch if you watch it closely, what happens after the blood is dropped is right. the only person who's laughing is the PJ Souls annoying character yes. with the red baseball yes. cap. She's yes, the only that's... one who's laughing. And in fact, right. she she tries to in she tries to enlist the two people next to her. In That's their right. laughter, and the male character, who's one of the three guys who was trying on the tuxedos in the tuxedo right. try-on scene, the little who, short guy, the little short guy who previously was sort of all aboard for all this mayhem, he's 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 not on board. He's just disgusted. You know, he he's not participating. And very pointedly, De Palma cuts away to people who are not laughing. Right. He right. cuts away I, to Betty Buckley. Cuts away to the principal character. Um, they're horrified. There is not widespread laughter. There's really only, they cut to one kid who we've never really seen before who's laughing, but his laughter and PJ Soul's laughter is presented as an indictment of them. It's not mm-hmm. widespread in the room. And that's what's kind of really fascinating about it is they're not actually all laughing at her. She does imagine there, and I guess wow. it could be the point that the mother's abuse of her has been has ignited the or the pig blood has ignited a lifetime of this mental abuse and physical abuse and she has what we call a break she has a break and it doesn't matter what anyone is or isn't doing right. i mean she has the gym teacher cut in half was the only person who really cared about carrie in the whole film with the with the is that with the uh the uh the table or the door is it the table yeah yes the door yeah and uh PJ Souls, I believe she drowns with the with the uh, yeah she's hit with the the hose, uh, the, the, right? mo- the moving fire hose yeah uh, she actually broke her eardrum filming the scene because the pressure really? of the fire, yeah pressure of the fire hose was so oh much. right I think I'd heard that some years ago um, so yeah I don't think they're all laughing at her and that's that is such a great choice right because it makes it more heartbreaking I mean as horrible as it is what happened to her. Had she not snapped, there's an alternative ending where, you know, the Amy Irving character and everyone kind of stands in revulsion at the Travolta Nancy Allen characters, and they're the bad people, and they're the ones who are shunned, and everyone circles and cares for Carrie and cleans her up, and that could have happened. <laughs> are you saying? Are you saying that they shot? No, him? no, no. I'm saying. No, 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 in, no, 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 no. Yes, I'm saying if you a... if you played it out, right? There's a happy ending that you right. could that you could envision here, where yes. where in fact they're not all laughing at you, and in fact, you know, it actually wouldn't even be a terrible ending per se to have this moment that's supposed to humiliate Carrie be the thing that actually creates this sense of community and family for her, and you could have her finally. Uh, cared for. Now, of course, it's a Brian De Palma film. It's a Stephen King story. So that's not what we're going to get. And then we wouldn't have that amazing. We wouldn't have her going home and 
by the way, on the way to the home, those the shot of you know, so Nancy Allen and Travolta's characters get away, and right. then Nancy Allen's gonna run carry over in the road, and this classic De Palma touch, quick cutaway to the side angle of Sissy Spacek's head and three quick cuts into her eye. And then the car using tele her telekinesis causes the car to flip over. And then we do it again, another three quick steps into her eye and then the car explodes. Brilliant, brilliant use of Carrie's command of her powers en route to the house, which sets up the final <laughs> just incredible series of sequences between her and her mother, which are, oh my God, it's just so Baroque and, and insane and loving and erotic and violent. It's it's so many things going on. Only Brian De Palma could keep all these balls in the air. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. It's just, my God. <laughs> she stabs her, like she's cradling her. Finally, Carrie has the love of her mother. Mama, hold me, hold me, mama. And she does, right? And then she Hitchcock, this Hitchcock knife, and she stabs her in the back, you know, the metaphorical and literal stab in the back. And, and the connection I never made before is that once Piper Laurie is pinned to the doorframe with all the flying implements, she's in the exact same position. And the arrows in the little Jesus figurine and mm -hmm. Carrie's prayer mm -hmm. locker that she's sent to, uh, are exactly mimicked in the Piper Laurie physiology hanging in the doorframe, that weird glowing-eyed Jesus that uh, she prays to in her room when she's being punished. So, oh my God. And then, and then as you mentioned, the house kind of- Sinks well, into the ground. Collapses and sinks into the ground. <laughs> Which is such a Kingian touch, right? That's such a Stephen King thing to happen. Uh, because are really- we, are, we, is, are we, are they going to hell? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's, it's weird to say that everything that happened before happens in the realm of plausibility, but it kind of does, you know, even the telekinesis doesn't feel quite so supernatural as the house sinking into the ground does. Right. Um, it feels like say, it feels satanic is I think it how does. it's supposed to it feel. Does. And she's, she's, it's like her powers, she's dead. It's she's not dead. like she's creating this moment. No. It's, it happens. It happens, yes. The earth and swallows them I, whole. I'm, I'm assuming we're going to talk about that last oh, scene. Then. Yes. That's the story that I have what, that I'll tell. But Go for it. Um, well, I saw the film, as I mentioned, in Manhattan, somewhere on Broadway in the 70s. I mean, I'm talking about 70. It's, I forget which theater, but I remember seeing it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that crowded. It, it had just come out. The buzz wasn't, had, hadn't started. I saw it. I, I was just like blown away by it. And for some reason, I decided I needed to see it again, literally within a week or two. Mm -hmm. And I went to another theater way uptown and it was packed. It was absolutely packed. And when the hand comes out from when 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 Amy Irving mm -hmm. does she place flowers on the grave? She does. Yeah. She has a bouquet. When the hand came out. 
I had seen the film. I knew it was going to happen. I'm not exaggerating. Almost everybody in the theater ran out of the theater spontaneously. They stood up and ran out of the theater. I'd never seen anything like it. I will never see anything like it again. Oh, my God. That was amazing. But I do want to mention, when I watched it last week, there not there, it says Carrie, does it say burn in hell? Carrie White burns in hell. Okay, Carrie White burns in hell. So this is obviously put there by, well, this is a, this is Amy Irving, Irving's dream, right? Or, yes, no, but we don't. Wait a minute. It but is, but you don't know that when you're first watching it. Right, but possibly there is that, there is actually that, that Carrie White burns in hell at the site of her home. Yes. And it, and it made me like, like, my response was like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> fuck you. Because look at your children. Yes. Look, 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 look what some of your children, how they treated Carrie White. I mean, yeah. I listen, if it really happened, and all these kids, of course, were destroyed mm-hmm. by <laughs> Carrie White, of course, there'd be the response would be, you know, you've destroyed my life. Yes. But there was a certain moment where I went, your kids, your kids, some of your kids, like Nancy Allen, how about her burning in hell? Yeah. I mean, I, I know that this sounds odd. No, I think this is exactly. Really like, I went like, God. I think this is, is what he know, wants you to think. It was a really brilliant touch. It really and is. It, just, it, it, it really was very visceral for me. And then, of course, when the hand comes out and grabs her, I mean, that. Well, I think Nobody that's the. That. I think that's always a thing in Stephen King's work that I've always felt like as a kid, you know, coming of age at this time, when Stephen King's books were a thing and we were all reading them, probably too young to be reading them. It's an outsider perspective in all of his books, in a way. I think you always felt in a Stephen King book that the that you were understood as a misfit because, particularly at the time, if you looked at Stephen King, I mean. He was he was a misfit. He was this this the nerdiest, strangest looking person that you could almost not see fitting into everyday society. And I think that fuels a lot of his literary creations and the stories that he told. And from the very first moments of Carrie, like we were talking about, that volleyball scene. I mean, if you were anything other than a jock in high school and a popular kid, which is, let's face it, most 95% of people, right? It's just like celebrity. I mean, it's only 1% of kids that get to enjoy that rarefied air, right? The rest of us have to deal with insecurity and feeling like we don't fit in, being mocked. Um, And I think De Palma sets that up right from the first frame of the film where you are like, fuck these kids, man. I want them Mm -hmm. all to die. Mm -hmm. And you do. You want them all to die. And they do all die. But of course, a lot of innocent people die as well. But that's a product of what's been done to Carrie by society, by religion, pointedly, by her parent, and by those mean kids. So I think you're meant to have, I think De Palma would be thrilled to hear you say that your reaction was, fuck you, when you see them defacing that that makes already makeshift sign of her grave, right? That someone had to go take the trouble to deface it is just a final indignity on this yeah. person who we yeah. care about. That's 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 what it was. And I know this is odd, 
and I'm not defending it in any way. I'm really not defending it. But when you think about, and in in no way am I defending the the response. But uh, like the, these 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 kids that go and shoot up schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the abuse that they take. And I'm not saying that that's mm-hmm. the response that is. <sighs> you know like columbine mm-hmm. um, i'm not in any way defending any any response like that but it's part of it the way kids are i i saw kids when i was in high school i can't imagine what their lives have been like since the way they mm-hmm. were treated yeah and no, um it really it really that movie is it's a horror movie but what you said in the beginning, it has such profound, um, it's so painful mm-hmm. for to watch somebody other. Yeah. And the, the abuse that they, mm-hmm. like, I mean. Yeah, it's, it's harrowing. It's harrowing. And, and, and it's Sissy Spacek who makes you care about her the way that we do. I mean, it's the, it's it's her her openness and empathy and availability as an actor on screen in these incredibly difficult scenes that always connects you to this wonderful spirit that lurks there. Like her scenes when she's happy at the prom with William Cat are as heartbreaking as the abuse scenes in their own way. She's she's blossoming under just the most the lightest touch of kindness and interest in her and that's heartbreaking that scene that you're talking about at the end which by the way was inspired by the scene in deliverance the final scene in deliverance which this idea that you don't get away with it even if you get away with it it's it's similarly a dream sequence for the john voigt character who sees a hand rising up you know they they're they're uh continued freedom is contingent upon the fact that these bodies will not rise up from the bottom of the river. And that scene made a big impression on De Palma. And so he acknowledges that that's where he got the idea from. What's interesting if you watch the scene now is when Amy Irving is walking towards the house, he wanted it to feel otherworldly and different. He didn't Mm -hmm. want to telegraph that it was a dream. But if you look carefully, it's filmed backwards. The Ah. The cars are moving the wrong way and they shot it backwards with her walking away from the house and down the street and then reversed the film. And it gives it this kind of, the plants are moving a little bit strangely, the light moves a little differently than your eye is used to. And it's just another great use of De Palma's technical touch and concept of filmmaking to give you this otherworldly sense that you don't quite understand. And then almost in the most Hitchcockian moment of his filmmaking of them all, when the hand, when Carrie's hand rises up out of those brimstones and grabs Amy Irving's forearm, he immediately cuts to Sue's mother's hand gripping her forearm mm-hmm. in the same place. And he and it cuts back and forth to that. And the mother is trying to comfort her. It's going to be okay. I love you. I love you. It's going to be okay. But it's not. It's not going it's to be not. okay. She's not getting away with it. Even though and she didn't she really... on the phone to her friend, she's young enough to forget it. Oh, no, no, amazing. she's not. That, yeah. that happens when you're maybe three. Yeah. It's she's incredible. 17. Did she such a, forget this? Such Everybody was killed. I mean, literally, if, I, if you think about it, everyone she knows... Yes. Yeah, she's not recovering from that. And her she's boyfriend. Not, and her boyfriend. 
how it's just. But I think the reason, not the reason, it's not like I was going to run out of the theater, but I had seen the film. And believe me, the first time I saw it when that hand came out, I probably peed a little, <laughs> but I didn't run out of the theater. But those people seeing it the first time, I don't know, somebody jumped up and everybody else jumped up. And it just really, <laughs> the first time seeing that is just, it's really, it's way scarier than uh, than Deliverance. Deliverance yes. is, is actually, actually the arm looks phony. I know um, people always comment on that. Well, I mean, it's, it has been underwater for several weeks. Yeah, but, that's yeah. true. Yes, you're right. You're right. You it's, know, Stephen uh, King has a version of your story that I heard him tell. As I said, it was his first book that he ever wrote. It was the first book he ever sold and the first property of his ever made into a movie. Probably the most, probably one of the best adaptations, even though, as we said, a lot of the device that he put over it was stripped out. So he says that at the time it was someone as lowly as the writer of the original source material wouldn't be invited to their own screening to see the finished film. He had to go with his wife, Tabitha, in Boston to some pre-release screening, I guess, that he had to pay his own way into. I first saw the movie, this, this was when I was very young and very new at the business, and nobody would ever think of giving such a minor creature as the author a screening. So I had not seen Carrie, uh, and I had not read the screenplay. And I went to see it at a preview in Boston. My wife and I went. And uh, all we knew was that there was going to be an 8 o'clock screening of Carrie a week before the wide opening of the picture. What we didn't know was that the movie that it had been paired with at the theater was Red Fox in a picture called Norman, Is That You? It was an urban audience, and it was almost 100% black. There were very few white people in the audience. And my heart just sank because I thought to myself, this is not going to go well. This particular audience is probably not going to relate to this skinny little white girl in an upper middle class suburb with her menstrual problems. But they did. Uh, it's one of the most heartening examples in my mind of the way that art levels all walks of life, all cultures, all races. They cared. They identified with her. And uh, they cheered, basically, when she pulled down the gymnasium and uh, the whole place caught fire. It was their reaction, as you said, that was so visceral to the film. They freaked out. They loved it. And that's when he realized, oh, this is something I, I tapped into something that's universal. Ultimate takeaway is that for all of his technical prowess and all of the things that he's known for in his films, Carrie, at the end of the day, is such a human movie and you cannot but be completely moved and have your heart torn apart by Sissy Spacek as Carrie. It's as simple I as have, that. I have a couple questions and then a comment. Yes. The question, here's my question. Do you know how he, did he, did he like the movie? Who, because Stephen King? Tra traditionally, I hear that he did not care for The Shining. No, he, he liked know, it. Did he, did he, he say that he, he liked Carrie? He, he loved Carrie. Good. Yes. And another thing that I didn't mention, that second time I saw this, Carrie, mm -hmm. it was an all-black audience except me. Really? Yes. Okay, that's weird because you and Stephen King had the same experience. I went uptown to a theater that I'd never been up to, <laughs> up close to Harlem, and it was, I forget the name of Are the theater. Are you sure you read this from Stephen King and then it turned into your own experience? Because Yes, it was my experience. You guys had the same experience probably at the same time. That's fascinating. That's amazing. But I wanted to say the fact that he was not invited blows, yeah. but welcome to Hollywood. <laughs>
that just blows. Well, you know, because if he was if he was the star or the director or the producer, he'd certainly have been invited and then some. But as we all know, and as we've all heard, writers in Hollywood, uh, it's not their medium. Let's just put it that way. Right. Okay. You said you had a question. I, d I don't I don't remember. Uh, that could have been the signature moment. The question was, oh, the question was, uh, my question was, what did he think of the film? Oh, all right. Yeah, no. He he liked the film. He he got it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, he, he I'm not a big fan of the Shawnee, so of the book or the movie. I like the book, the movie. I like some of it. Wow. And, and okay. I love Kubrick. You know, I love Kubrick yeah. more than anybody, but it's not in my it's not in my. I don't know. You may never want to speak to me <laughs> saying I didn't love the Shining. <laughs> well, look. I mean, no one loves The Shining in terms of an emotional response to a film or being moved or being entertained. I mean, it's it, it's a film I love, but I wouldn't want to go see it. You know, I don't watch it. Um, like, I'll go watch Carrie. Sure. If it's on, I'm watching it. If The Shining's on, maybe I'll watch it. I agree with you. I, I would read. <laughs> I, I'm happy to read about The Shining. I'm uh -huh. happy to know a lot about The Shining. I'm happy to have the new 4k release which has a lot of special features i'm interested oh, well, in all of I'll that stuff that. i'll look at that but in terms of sitting down and watching the shining I, there's not a time where even i want to do that i don't want to have that experience more than the times i already have interesting and i think that's you know that's a particular type of a film right i think that stephen king didn't know per se that all of the sort of government investigation elements. So I think the first time he saw it, there was a little bit of a kind of like, oh, what have they done to my story? But then I think he quickly realized it was the right choice for the film. It really was the right choice. I had no idea because I haven't read the, I had not read the book. I didn't well, realize. Well, we should speak a little bit about these theatrical adaptions because I believe that at least one of them that I've seen has that device put back in. There's an interrogation type element where I think the Sioux character after the fact is being interrogated by a government investigator who wants to get to the bottom. Name, please. State your full name. You already know my name. It's Sue. Susan Snell. And you were born in the town of? Chamberlain, Maine. I was born and raised there. When did you first meet Carrie White? Elementary school. I saw a few. So there's the famous I mean, one of the one, I guess the definitive book written about Broadway flops is called something like and then came Carrie or after Carrie, like it's mentioned as among, if not the greatest musical flops in the history of musical theater. if that's overstated or not, but it's certainly considered that because the Broadway transfer version had a capitalization at the time of $8 million, which was oh, probably man. the most expensive ever at that time, I would say. 
in the early 80s, like pre-cats, I don't know. But it closed after some number of previews and some number of terrible reviews. Um, that was the Broadway version. There was a kind of a fascinatingly disastrous UK version that I've read about. And you can see some of that online, which has really weird choices made in costuming and staging. Um, and then there's like this, tell me why this is well regarded, like this 2012, did you see that? The revival that they did with uh, a pretty good cast of some Broadway no. notables, including oh, no. the late- I never saw it. No. Uh, Marin, Marin Mazzi. Who was oh, Marin played Marin. Marin played the mother. Yes, she was it on Broadway. I think it no, was probably I don't think Broadway. it was on Broadway. I think it was a well, it was nominated for awards for best revival, but I think it did one of those things where it was like you know when like Lincoln Center does like a staged kind of reading or uh -huh. they stage some of the musical numbers. I'm not sure it was a full production, but there is a cast album. The video I sent you is that cast performing in a studio, the songs that were in that show. I don't think it ever opened and ran. But that version of the show is apparently licensable if you would like to stage that at your college, high school, or community theater. Wonder if they do. Wonder if people do. Wow. I to me, I mean, you'd have to tell me. You're a musical theater guy, so well, I think. Don't say that, but I am. It's true. I think yes. that I think that you know there are conventions that you accept in that world. That to me, not being of that world, I just look at and think that's horrible. Like these these songs expressing what you know someone in a movie or in the book would simply just express through their words or actions I, I that's where it loses me and especially with something like Carrie like, these musical numbers are just like oh my god but I guess people liked those songs once they retooled it in 2012 I don't know have you watched any of that stuff I haven't but I'm going to <laughs> I, I now that now that I I, I forgot that Marin who was May she rest in peace. Was a was a dear friend of mine, but I I didn't. Well, she gives a powerhouse performance of a song that is one of the mother songs. She, I mean, she, she is, is great, all in. Great I mean, you singer. can't. I wish I'd have talked about it with her. Um, now I just you know I'm not. I'm, I do musicals. I don't. I don't like generally go to blank musicals. the musical. I think that was no. much more of a thing at the time. I think thankfully we're a little bit past that now, right? musicalizing films. everything yeah musicalizing any piece of ip you know uh they're doing uh <laughs> let's see what's the film uh, uh, uh cameron crow uh, 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 almost uh, famous almost the musical famous. Yeah, yeah in yeah. the fall that's okay. coming to broadway okay i'm writing a musical oh uh, you're uh, lee uh, but it's not based it's 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 okay. about the events that happen in a great documentary oh okay not, so it's not a musicalization it, of the documentary. It's documentary, the musical. It's 
Do you know the documentary? Have you have you talked about it? Brothers Keeper? Oh, it's my favorite documentary film of all time. Well, I'm, I've written a musical about the events. Wow. Now, do the three brothers sing in your musical? Yes, they do. Do the, Are the filmmakers characters in your musical? No. I see. So no. we're, we're, we're purely in the world of the brothers. Yes, it's about the events. Okay. Um, wow. It's not, it's not the doc. It's not about the, it's not a musicalization of the documentary. Okay. Okay. All right. First I, time I've said this out loud. Really? Well, are you okay with this being out into the world on the full cast of crew podcast or breaking news? You know, if Joe Berlinger hears it. He might get a little nervous. <laughs> well, as you said, you're very careful to say it is not a musicalization of the no, documentary a, as you've probably yes. no doubt been advised by your lawyers. <laughs> It's uh, called Brotherly Love, and that's all I'll say. Wow. That I'm intrigued by. That I'm intrigued by. That, talking about having an emotional reaction in a film, I still remember the first time I saw that movie and that scene of the one brother literally physically shaking on the stand. Lyman. Lyman being forced to try to testify is... One of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen in any film, documentary or otherwise. Well, I'll mention one other thing. If we ever do a reading or if it ever gets done, I'm not only written the book and the lyrics, but I will be playing Lyman. Wow. I love this. <laughs> I love this. Okay. That's all I have to Workshop, say. Workshop, please. <laughs> All right, Lee. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Carrie. I really, really enjoyed revisiting this film. It ripped my heart out. I was mad at you last night watching it because why are you making me have this empathetic experience where I was just kind of trying to relax and I didn't expect my heart to be ripped out uh, and flayed open like Sissy Spacek did. But it is really a rewarding and amazing film. I hope people are inspired to go check it out after listening to us. I hope so. I, I, I I can't imagine anyone of my generation, your your generation. I was I was there when it opened. You yeah. know, I was like twenty five. Yeah, you're significantly younger. But for people that are not aware of it, I just I just think it, it, you know there are some movies that you, you have to see. This, this is, is one, one of them. them. Yep, I really believe that, and it it does not lose it does not lose any poignancy. Uh, having been made, how many years ago is this? Forty. At least, yeah. I mean, it's it it's 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 a movie that that resonates for all time. It does. It'll make you a better person to watch this film, and you can watch it for a number of reasons. If you want to watch it for that, you can watch it for that. If you're a cineast and you want to watch virtuosic camera movement and filmmaking, you can watch it for that. If you're a Hitchcock freak like De Palma, you can watch it for Hitchcock references, of which there are are innumerable throughout the film. It's if you're a fan of acting, it's worth watching. It's just really? worth revisiting. This is wonderful. All right, let's do it again. Okay. Think about your next movie. Take care. Thanks Bye. again. Bye-bye.